people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules of What. My name is Sam, joined by Alex. Hi. Hi, doing Alex. Yeah, good. <laughs> and we are very pleased to be joined by Jess Thorne, who is the archivist at the new Stuart Christie uh, Memorial Archive, which we're going to be discussing today. They've got a fundraiser going on. It's still going on. It's just past its threshold of £10,000, but it turns out that uh, the fundraising website takes a lot of money, so they still need your support. Um, it's a really exciting archive. We're going to be talking about um, who Stuart Christie was in this episode. Um, the link is in the show notes to the archive. Go and donate uh, anything you can. Um but also, like, you know, if you raise another 5k, then that's an extra 5k to do cool stuff. So you should. Yeah, you should exactly. Um, yeah. We also, you know, we, we, we've spoken about this like internally, those that are involved that, you know, if there's like surplus like funds, you know, we want to give that money to sort of groups that Stuart would have been sympathetic yeah. to sort of prisoner support groups and and whatnot. So, you know. We're not just gonna sit on that, sit on that money. Um, we do wanna do, you know, actually socially useful and important things with it. So you're not just contributing to the May Day millions, but oh. um... <laughs> if only, if only the May Day millions existed. Those of us involved in doing the crowdfunder aren't like massively experienced in running crowdfunders. <laughs> it feels like a bit of a stab in the dark. Um, but uh, so we got to, to sort of 10,000, but actually realised that GoFundMe take commission. So we weren't actually at 10,000, we were just below. But now I think it's 11,300 and something. Um, Great stuff. So yeah, yeah just in, in, incredible. Um, I think, yeah, all of us that are sort of involved, which includes, you know, Stuart's daughter and, and, and close friends and family are just kind of, gobsmacked i mean we knew how like how much stuart was admired but i think you know it's particularly grim times at the moment um what with you know government mismanagement of the pandemic and we thought that you know would people reach in their pockets for an archive <laughs> right at this moment um but yeah they did and uh, like it just thanks doesn't seem enough really it's just you know i, I keep saying oh thanks so much but <laughs> yeah it's um yeah it's hard to put into words i think and it's not over, right? So you can still donate. There'll be a link in the yeah, in the yeah, show notes yeah. as well to the to the donation page. We are of course talking about the uh, Stuart Christie Memorial Archive, which is going to be based out of Maydeer Rooms in London. It's on Fleet Street. It's a really great kind of archival space in general. But this uh, is a really kind of uh, exciting addition to their the many archives they have there. And we're talking about Stuart Christie. Um, so people who don't know who Stuart Christie was um just kind of we'll go into his life in much more detail over the course of this this episode but um yeah tell us just kind of a broad overview who was Stuart Christie and why is there a memorial dedicated to him mm. so I mean to give a brief a very brief summary we can we, yeah we can go into the detail later Stuart was kind of one of the major figures of, of post-war British anarchism um he kind of propounded, I guess, what you would call like a class struggle based anarchism, I guess, opposed to sort of the, the book's chin critique of, you know, sort of a more like lifestyle sort of anarchism. It's, a, it's quite a sort of old school anarchism based on the um, syndicalism of, of the CNC, the anarcho-syndicalist trade union in Spain. Um, and it was on the issue on Spain, which I guess Stuart became or found sort of notoriety on and became, you know, said the least, yes. Yeah, he <laughs> almost like got celebrity status in, in Britain for a while because, because of the action that he took. Um, it, so in 1964, in the summer of 1964, he um, made a trip to Paris where he met uh, loads of sort of anarchist Spanish. Mm exiles um and from there he um picked up a package which included um these sort of like french made plastique explosives that he was then going to deliver to uh, another anarchist in spain um, and he crossed 
over the Pyrenees by foot, um, got to a bar where this handover was supposed to happen. And uh, it's quite obvious that he had been followed the entire way. And uh, he uh, stepped, he got, got into this bar and it, and things just didn't seem right everywhere. It's almost like a scene in the Western where everyone turned round and was like, <laughs> waiting for <laughs> this event to unfold. Um, and uh, so he stepped outside and uh, yeah, felt a gun in the back. And uh, basically the Guardia Surreal saying, you know, terrorist, terrorist. Um, so yeah, he was arrested for three years. Um, when he came out, he set up the, when he came out of prison in Spain, he set up the anarchist Black Cross for um, Spanish anarchist prisoners. And that's probably, I guess, in terms of like his legacy, one of the, the longest lasting, there's still, you know, anarchist Black Cross groups that are, active i guess more so in this in the states and the uk perhaps because of just the sort of the nature of the castle system over there um and and yeah so he he was kind of I, really his importance is that he ended up connecting uh basically the sort of the anarchism in Spain, that sort of golden period of, of anarchism, but also kind of like tragic um, defeat with the a kind of new generation of radicals in the 60s, like this, the generation around 68. Um, so he became this kind of conduit, really, um, and ended up, you know, translating loads of materials from Spain that, that otherwise would have been completely inaccessible. I mean, loads of those materials are, you know, they're on undergraduate reading lists now. Um, so, you know, he has, yeah, he has a really, really important legacy and across like really diverse, diverse terrains as well. Yes, great. So as, as you said, most uh, kind of, I guess, uh, infamous or famous or uh, celebrated or um, hated uh, for his part in a kind of plot essentially to assassinate Franco, as far as I understand it. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, that's probably, yeah, that's the most spectacular sort of detail of his life. Um, but then he also, because of that, because of his involvement um, in Spain and his connection with uh, Spanish anarchists, he also ended up uh, getting caught up in what, what became one of the longest criminal trials in English history, which was the trial of um, the Angry Brigade, which was this urban guerrilla group which sprang up in the late 60s, um, who had this kind of, they, were pro they probably wouldn't have described themselves really as anarchists. They had lo lots of the members of this group came out of the more sort of libertarian, socialist, left, um, sort of new left, um, and were kind of like radicalized by that experience. Many of them, some of them also met um, Spanish anarchists in London and were kind of, you know, they, they saw these kind of very committed uh revolutionaries that had these you know like fascinating life stories and and uh were inspired by that so yeah Stuart got ended up getting caught up in the the, the trial of the angry brigade because of his, his link with spain and basically uh lots of the targets of the angry brigade were that include like spanish embassies um u.s embassies um also included like very weird targets including um the uh, like banks and banks and stuff so it had this very kind of like libertarian socialist sort of new left feel um but uh he yeah he um basically got caught up in this because of his his link his connection to spain and also what was i guess quite key um was that one of the guns they the police were investigating a series of attacks that were occurring in london um in the late 60s on spanish embassies and apparently according to police reports one of the guns used in these attacks was later found at a commune in uh i think hackney um and that's where the supposed members of the Angry Brigade were sort of all hanging out. Um, and they, they thought that Stuart was a the connection. They basically thought Stuart was importing these revolutionary continental ideas into conservative Britain. Um, 
And in some ways he was, but he wasn't in the way <laughs> that they were accrediting him. Accrediting I always him. find it really fascinating, both in the history of British anarchism and in the history of um, British anti-fascism, that both anarchism and um, fascism are conceived of as like strictly uh, non-British imports, right? They're... So people refer to, uh, for example, even now people refer to, say, like Tommy Robinson, who's obviously not a Nazi. They refer to him as like a Nazi in order in some ways to like make it seem like it's a thing that comes from outside Britain. And like Britain is treated as this, this place with basically no political ideas apart from liberalism. Um, and, and therefore everything else that's outside of that must be some sort of strange foreign import. But one of the things we were mentioning just before we started recording was this connection between um, uh, Christie's uh, kind of form formative period uh, in growing up in Glasgow in the in the fifties and sixties, and his grandma. Um, his the title of his uh, autobiography is um, "Granny Maybe an Anarchist." He has another mm -hmm. kind of part of his memoir, um, which is uh, "Franco Maybe a No." What's the one called? Franco Maybe a Terrorist and <laughs> Ed Heath Made Me Angry. Angry. Yeah. 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 Which just somehow is like uh, <laughs> just a very yeah, it's also very funny. But um, yes, what, what, can you can you can you tell us some more about his kind of um, his political journey to the point at which, at the age of I think eighteen, right, you um, cross over into France and then hitchhike to Spain in order to blow up Franco. Mm -hmm. Right, this is this is quite like a a strange childhood. It's a childhood I wish I'd had as well. Um, obviously, you know, we've gone caught up from this in the past on SoundCloud, so I'm just going to say it now. The official position of 12 rules to what is not that you should blow up fascist dictators. We've been uh, slapped on the wrist by SoundCloud, so I'm going to just say that. Um, yes. Uh, how did he become uh, a per the person who you know, did this kind mm. of like amazing thing? I think that, that, that there were many different important sort of events and sort of trajectories which, which led him to take that quite sort of, uh, you know, extreme extreme action whenever I, you, whenever you mention it to people that you know particularly those in Spain that actually aren't aware of, of Stuart they're just kind of like why um <laughs> just totally amused why this person would uh would do that um so I mean I think so he grew up in he was raised in the Partick district of, of Glasgow which was very like poor working class part of Glasgow it's it's not the same anymore I think it's been quite gentrified um and uh he he was raised there um sort of in one of the old Edwardian tenements and and he says in I think it's granny made me an anarchist he talks about the kind of the community there and how basically he came into contact with at least at the, the physical physical level um you know Kropotkin's idea of mutual aid um and he said that you know in the in in the um entrances of the tenements basically you know you, you'd have these congregations of, of mostly women basically looking out for uh those in the tenements that had fallen ill or had just like facing various problems and everyone would like crowd around and, and try and like resolve the problem or reach in their pockets or whatever so this like sort of like working class community was really important for that um he then moves to Lanterre, which is this uh, scottish people are probably going to be like that's not really how you say Lanterre, right but <laughs> um but yeah, okay. uh, the, the, the amount of like French uh, has, that has been butchered and German that's been butchered on this podcast already, you know, don't worry. So. Yeah, um, so he moves there and uh, Blanchet has a really interesting uh, history and a really interesting, and, and I guess in some ways unusual, but not really surprising connection to Spain. So it was a mining town. Um, so, and I think that the Communist Party was very present there um, and basically three um, international brigaders came from Blanter um, and I think all of them died in battle actually in Spain um, so they became like like local martyrs um, and, and Stuart grew up with this he grew up with this history um, and you know it would just be constantly spoken about um, he would frequently sort of like go past like the Miners Welfare Institute and he would recall these sort of quite 
heated conversations about the civil war in Spain and, and whether, you know, what the communists said was counter-revolutionary. And it was just kind of like within the common parlance of like the local sort of left-wing community, it was kind of like you couldn't really escape it. Um, so there was that as well. And also I think yeah, he came from an interesting family background in the sense that he was like mostly raised, raised by his grandparents. Um, and I think I, his his grandmother, I think I, I always get this like mixed up. Was was like pro, but came from a Protestant background, and his grandfather was Catholic. So um, obviously that was quite unusual in at that time. Like Glasgow and and Lancaster is not too far from Glasgow. It's quite sort of sectarian still. Um, so I think some of, like also some of the values that Stuart's grandmother sort of instilled in him were sort of you know kind of I guess sort of like sort of Christian ideals of like support and um, you know I think with very little resources she always made sure that you know everyone was clothed and, and fed and, and stuff so he kind of like grew up within you know this kind of it had there were like anarchist sort of like tendencies there they weren't obviously remotely even sort of organized or even sort of like enunciated really um, but I guess when you're writing a memoir and you're trying to sort of sort of join various stories together, you know, it becomes like a bit of a sort of like a like a, a telos. It's like you have to, well, everything surely had to lead to this moment, sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there was a mixture of, of you know family and like local geography. Um, and I guess what's also interesting about Ontario is that it was a mining community um, and in 1962, so Stuart would have been 16, 17, um, there were these huge, uh, quite successful strikes in Spain, um, in Asturias, which was another mining region. Um, and that was constant, that, that was in the press and in the international press quite a lot. So Stuart would have been looking at that. I think he also had a teacher that was a kind of, um, guess quite sort of middle of the road socialist um and that's actually where Stuart first that was where he went first with socialism and he joined the independent labor party um but uh i think that the other events in the 60s sort of basically made it clear that that sort of the road of the labor party was not one to go down and that actually you know the post 1945 social democratic arrangement had fallen short in so many ways particularly in terms of, you know, authority on the shop floor and, and what the closer alignment of state and trade unions actually meant, were workers actually empowered by this. Um, so there are all these things, all these things going on. Um, I mean, also the Cold, the Cold War was major, had a major impact on Stuart, um, particularly with obviously uh, sort of US military bases in Scotland um, and, you know, basically, you know, Hollylock became essentially, it was, it was threatened with like nuclear annihilation. Um, so that, that radicalized loads of, you know, loads of, loads of, um, young people in, in, in Scotland, Stuart very much included. And he becomes involved in the, with the CND, right? The campaign for nuclear disarmament, which yeah. as far as I, maybe this is apocryphal, but like seems to become kind of important a bit later, um, when he's in jail in um, Spain and needs, and there's, there's a kind of international campaign for his release, which contains um, people like Bertrand Russell, who's of course very prominent in the CND, and even people like um, Sartre, which is uh, just astonishing. And uh, in, the, in the interviews I read with him, when this is kind of brought up, this kind of, um, I don't know, like, uh, convergence or kind of meeting with, uh, you know, people who are probably like the pre-war and post-war kind of like most prominent intellectuals in in Europe he's like just kind of brushes it off he's like well I have no idea why they're interested in me you know it's it's extraordinary kind of modesty <laughs> kind of uh, goes along uh, with all these things yeah okay good yeah so you mentioned earlier that he formed um always involved in the kind of the resuscitation or something like this of the anarchist black cross in the UK which is um kind of a militant version of Amnesty International uh, which is like does kind of political support for political prisoners, including people who have been imprisoned for um, political crimes of violence. Um, 
uh, which Amnesty International, I think, as far as I can tell, kind of doesn't want to touch, like people who are kind of involved in that. So I think it's a really important organization, uh, especially because, um, you know, politics necessarily includes violence. Uh, you can't kind of like, you know, um, remove it. Um, I found a description and I, I want to just like kind of, it's just an amazing description of this organization. So I just want to like read it out. Um, so the activity is divided into two parts. The first part was to provide material support in the form of food parcels and medical supplies to be put to um, Spanish resistance. Okay, fine. I can imagine food parcels, medical supplies. I can imagine that gets past most international. Seems reasonable to me, yeah. Yeah, that seems fine. The second part is to like provide direct aid to the Spanish resistance movement, including, <laughs> this is a great list, print duplicators, typewriters, and guns. So <laughs> it's quite an escalation, isn't it? It is quite an escalation. Yeah, it's a Guns. it's a real yeah. It, it really zooms off at the end. So, how did this, this support for the Spanish resistance work, and how was it able to get past like obviously international uh, embargoes on uh, arms dealing? Um, so, I mean, the the actual there's not much. I mean, Stuart wasn't one for clarity when it came to actually how he conducted. Uh, illegal activity, particularly in sort of, you know, the sort of anarchist black cross bulletins that you find at the time, because obviously they were they were being read by various security services. But also, you know, he didn't really like they didn't get away. They didn't get away with it at all. The, the offices of um, anarchist black cross were, were raided. Um, there was an office on. Um, oh, is it Compton Street, the street opposite the British Museum? That they had an office there, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was raided by a uh, special branch, um, and they were sort of looking for sort of various materials that would uh, basically indict indict Stuart. All they found, I think, was uh, 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 what they thought was like a. But they said it was a fraudulent, um, like ten dollar bill. But it was just a bit of like propaganda that Stuart had made and was going to give out at demos. It was quite obviously a fake. And then they tried to stitch him up for like trying to fraudulently make money. Um, so yeah, he didn't he didn't really he didn't really get away with it. In terms of, you know, there's loads of letters um, from Spanish prisoners that are sent into the Anarchist Black Cross, which you know, very grateful for like the food parcels that are sent. Also like medicines, that's something that's really important in um, Franco's jails because they were just so poorly, poorly was like basic things like, you know, paracetamol, they just couldn't, couldn't get really. Um, but there was also obviously, there were these kind of, you know, like connections to a new wave of Spanish resistance in the sixties, which began uh, initially with a, a group called Defensa Interior uh, interior defense, which um, was set up um, by a Spanish exiled anarchist in um, Mexico, and he was called Octavio Abaroda. And um, he uh, has a really interesting history. This is one, another one of like the fascinating connections that Stuart has. He has, a, yeah, Octavio had a really interesting history. He was um, involved in. Uh, basically the uh, Cuban revolution and like worked in one of the, the propaganda uh, groups uh, alongside Castro and, and Che Guevara. And um, when he basically returned to Europe after the Cuban revolution, a bit disillusioned with how that had sort of gone to turn out, but also thought that, you know, guerrilla tactics could perhaps be imported into Europe and perhaps that could remove Franco dictatorship in in Spain um, and uh, so he basically brought together this disparate group of exiled anarchists um, who were committed to taking you know violent direct action against uh, representatives of the regime most of their targets were actually property obviously there's various assassination attempts of, of Franco which um, all failed Obviously, I'm not giving any spoilers there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that 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 organisation ended up like winding up by sort of, but actually by the time just by the time that Stuart arrived in in Spain, that organisation had, had pretty much just been brutally repressed. Um, 
and two of its members have been executed. Um, so, you know, and, and Stuart would have been aware of this, what would happen is, you know, incredibly like brave uh, path to take. Um, and then, th so this organization wound up and then sort of 67, 68, it gets kind of revived, but with a broader focus. It's, it's now, it, it, you have this group called um, the 1st of May group. And uh, there's various, you know, various people said there's like connections between the 1st of May group and uh, the Angry Brigade. Um, and I think Gordon Carr, who's written this history of the Angry Brigade, I think is published by PM, PM Press. He kind of indicates strongly that there was this like connection between the 1st of May group and then those that would go on to be involved in the Angry Brigade. Um, so uh, the Anarchist Black Cross ends up publish, like publicizing a lot of the communiques that are coming in from the 1st of May group. So they'll claim an attack somewhere and the Anarchist Black Cross will like publish what they've done. Um, it, it's unclear how, <laughs> how much funds perhaps maybe went to the 1st of May group or if they even did. Um, it seems perhaps likely that they, they, they probably did. Um, but as I said, that the, the documentary trace of that is quite hard to uh, find. Stuart wasn't kind of, he didn't really kind of want to talk about that. Um, so it's understandable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, totally understandable. So just to talk a bit about uh, the actual work of the archive, because um, obviously we talked a lot about Stuart's early life. He had a long career of publishing and um, archiving himself. Um, what does give you a sense of what this archive is? What what's the kind of material that's in it, and um, what have you found particularly most interesting as the person working on or beginning to work on this? Mm, yeah, so, so so much has uh, come through in the process of just like initiating the call for support um, when we start when we first had the idea we were basically, we just had the material that Stuart's daughter had um, that, you know, he left in, left in the house. Um, and most of that stuff, um, it includes sort of like print runs of, um, Stuart had a, a publishing house, which he set up with another quite important British anarchist called Albert Meltzer in the mid seventies called um, Theon Fuegos Press. Um, I'm so and, glad you said that, so I, I was trying not to say it. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, uh, named after a Cuban, a Cuban anarchist. Um, and uh, he, yeah, they set up this publishing house and, you know, it, 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 it published and translated loads of, of, of texts on struggles in, in Spain and, and Latin America. Um, so there's, lo there's, lo there's, there's loads of print runs of that. It was like, a, you, you get like the, the it would have like a press review and like they had these really beautiful artworks on the front that were designed by um, this Italian art artist who I think had sort of anarchist sympathies, but was kind of a bit of an amorphous character like most artists are. <laughs> he um, called Flavio Constantini and um, he did all the art for it. But we've also got some like posters, like original like posters that Flavio Constantini did. Um, also includes obviously like bits of correspondence um, that we have letters from uh, Stuart that he sent whilst he was in Spain. Um, we have loads of, we have photographs as well of Stuart in prison, which um, didn't sort of didn't appear on Stuart's Facebook, which he kind of ended up using a bit like an archive sort of towards his later life. Um, there's also, um, you know, there's, there's lots of <laughs> uh, Stuart, kind of didn't make things easy for us. So he uh, kind of deposited things, I feel a bit sort of on a whim and, you know, you know, some sort of archive initiative would come up and he'd go, oh, I'll, I'll just put it there for a bit. And then he would take things back out. Um, so yeah, he's incredibly, uh, yeah, like he, I guess probably wanted to keep us on, on our toes, um, but there's some, um, he donated, like, I think quite a lot of material to uh, the Kate Sharpley Library, um, and they've been incredibly um, generous and supportive of, of what we're doing, and, and they're hoping to get some of the material that is currently stored uh, in California 
um, to us so it can be uh, with the archive. And yeah, they, they've been just so, so important for us and really, really useful. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's we're working with like various different sort of, you know, groups and individuals to get all of Stuart's material in one in one place and and to make it accessible so to, to so to digitize it um, and make it available online um, so people can actually use it um, yeah I, I mean I think we've, I've made this point on Twitter and other people have made it that it's often like kind of a break between the struggles of the past and and the contemporary struggles and like projects like archiving and particularly archives of such importance and relevance to a really vital movement um, you know, it's it's really useful and you know vital to have accessible and there and collated and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, um. definitely. I think you know it's it's really interesting. I was I was looking through uh, an an interview that Stuart did, I think, in in two thousand and four, and he he kind of says he's talking he's kind of reflecting on um, his participation in sort of armed struggle in, in the sixties and seventies and, and other groups at the time. And he kind of says, well, you know, it happened 30 years ago that the strategies and tactics that were useful then don't really apply now sort of thing. Um, so I think that's what's interesting about Stuart is I don't think, you know, some anarchists that you come across can be like incredibly dogmatic and, you know, think one uh, tactic or strategy is, you know, this trans historical path that like you have to go down and it's it's this way or there's there's no way sort of thing now obviously like Stuart's full of conviction um and you know there were certain convictions which you obviously you know wouldn't be challenged by like at all but I think in terms of tactics and strategy that he was always you know willing to be open he was involved in so you know his throughout his life he's, he was involved in so many different sort of social movements um that he ended up like accumulating sort of all of these tactics and strategies so you know an archive really can you know an archive like this anyway can can be like a, a repository of, of tactics and strategies for the for the contemporary contemporary left not that all of those tactics and strategies necessarily necessarily be useful now but like nevertheless to compare what was useful then to what is useful now this is a useful exercise um so yeah i think even though Stuart made that remark that you know oh it's 30 years ago you know you tried it then wouldn't work now I think he still would think that it's still necessary to like look at what he was involved in even if it's to say actually this would fail now this this wouldn't work what was it what was his kind of relationship to anarchism is it kind of I guess like became more contemporary right so um there's a a book called um towards a militia um to, sorry not towards a militia towards a citizen militia something mm. towards yeah towards the militia right um which is obviously a very controversial book because it's it's literally about like how you would um i'm pretty sure it's illegal to own a copy of right <laughs> naturally the archive does not possess a copy <laughs> no but no. and 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 12 rules for what is also against people uh <laughs> of strictly legal reasons uh, against people owning copies of, and that, that, that that's obviously extremely controversial text the, I guess the question is like, how did Stuart approach the transformation of anarchism um, into uh, the present day? I mean, in some ways you can see the 1964 event when he goes to Spain as already kind of an, an echo of the international brigades in, you know, 30 mm -hmm. years before. Um, or maybe that maybe the question isn't really so much like how did he approach it, but like what do you think? How do you think that his actions have echoed forward into anarchism? I guess. Yeah, I think that's it's really interesting that point that you made about sort of 1964 being like an echo of a kind of a generation that had sort of long been defeated. Um, it, it felt like that sort of that moment in the 60s. It feels like the de the final death throes of that sort of. That, that sort of um, revolutionary anarchism in the in the thirties, and um, 
I think there's obviously um, is it George Woodcock who uh, has written various histories of anarchism basically claims that like by the 19 sort of after the 1960s it's just not really a kind of big movement anymore um, I think Stuart um, sort of as he gets old obviously he um, he ends up leaving London because it's no longer really safe for him he keeps getting stitched up in uh, various sort of uh, like conspiracies you know the anger brigade trial I think that was a thing that he was like I need to kind of get out of this situation otherwise I probably will end up with another prison sentence um, so obviously he goes off to, to Orkney and yeah that's where he writes that um, the alternative to NATO yeah citizens um, militia which I think also then leads to like a visit from special branch again um, I don't know how he quite sort of got out of that one either I just he just must have been like extremely charming or something I don't know I just feel like <laughs> it, obviously also it was a very different time I think today my god if you were to to do that it just you know you, would, you know would stand no chance um, but I, mean, I think comparatively mild text right like um the invisible committee text right um towards the coming insurrection comparatively mild i would guess i haven't read obviously because it's illegal the yeah. towards citizens militia but i'm guessing that it doesn't simply kind of advocate for like um minor property destruction on like french yeah. rail um but yes think, no you're absolutely right. i think stuart's response was like ah, oh, but it you know he kind of suggested it was this kind of almost like this like home guard home front sort of thing like if there was to be this like collapse of you know sort of society or some kind of war how could we have our own home guard mm, <laughs> i think that's yes. how he kind of like passed it up. that's extremely kind um, yeah it is yeah, it's great um but i think yeah you know as he he i think remains involved in anarchist black cross for, for the most of the 1970s although the sort of uh the affinity group of anarchist back cross changes and, and different people are involved um and i think yeah sort of the 80s and 90s he's he's mainly involved in in publishing um so you know i think he still has his his ear to the anarchist movement and also he still he still goes over he goes over to spain a lot and you know it was that remained a kind of you know a lifelong sort of love affair for him um I think he went over to Spain in, in the sort of late seventies when the CNT in Spain was sort of reconstructing itself, um, and then sort of in the, the sort of the two thousands and stuff like that. Um, obviously, he ended up writing lots like memoirs, memoirs of his own life, um, and also created this really astonishing um, film archive, which we're trying to. Um, basically store on the Mayday Room server because Stuart, he had this a film archive. He paid for it to be hosted on a, on a private server, but um, there's a danger of it just suddenly disappearing. And uh, mm -hmm. so that was the first thing we were like, we need to save this now before it all just like uh, gets wiped. All the technology he used becomes like completely impossible and redundant to kind of preserve um so yeah i think his you know you know he does he doesn't retire from anarchism but he does take sort of i guess a bit of a back step from it but also because i mean the anarchist movement in the 80s and 90s is is you know there's various things going on and you have you know organizations like class war and and whatnot but you know it, it's not the movement that it was I think that's like a safe pretty safe thing to say it's you know like the rest of the left uh it's in a period of defeat um and you know you have like the years of Thatcher Thatcher Blairism and all the rest of it so I think you know Stuart would, would probably say sort of by the, the sort of you know 2000s that there probably wasn't really much of an anarchist movement um to speak of in in Britain there were you know various social movements and I guess you could look at things like the alter globalization movement and stuff like that as having sort of, I guess, anarchist sort of like tendencies, but it was never kind of concrete. Um, 
and I guess like a lot of the sort of I guess more like contemporary anarchist movement um it, I guess it has like a slightly in some sense a slightly more like counter-cultural feel not that Stuart wasn't involved interested or fascinated by counterculture but he was actually this is one of the interesting things about him like quite skeptical of the new left and thought that like it was a kind of quite sort of like campus middle class thing um and that it was kind of like a fad and that the fascination of the situationists would soon like people would get over it sort of thing um so he was yeah this was an illusion yes yeah they did not get over it (laughs) (laughs) um he was yeah he was skeptical and yeah as i said i think um at the the beginning uh he you know his idea of anarchism was a kind of based on a quite I guess it seems quite old school now, but yeah, a, a class, a class struggle, anarchism. Um. I guess there's a kind of a tension in telling these his- these stories between uh, really exceptional individuals and what is obviously like a collective, collective kind of movement. I wonder how that comes out in uh, Stuart Christie's own writing about things. So he wrote the We the Anarchists, so history of um, anarchism in Iberian Peninsula. I'm wondering, like, what. Um, how does he tell those stories of the relationship between like exceptional individuals and like collective movements? How did he understand maybe his own place in that struggle or in that history? Yeah, I think it's like, that's always like a bit of a, to use a bit of a sort of wanky word, uh, dialectical tension, isn't there? Between the kind of like the individual and the, and the collective, um, and that's a tension in anarchism, isn't it? You know, you have this, these two strands, this kind of individualist sort of strand and this collectivist strand. I know Stuart probably would have been accused in some ways actually of going down an individualist strand, you know, like, go, like going and taking this action sort of by yourself and this quite sort of propaganda of the deed style thing, you know. Uh, he wasn't particularly, you know, uh, that involved in sort of like you know like trade union conflicts or anything like like you know it was a kind of a quite adventurous sort of um adventurous action um that he did sort of off his own volition you know there was no sort of committee or anything telling him what to do um i think he's actually like an incredibly really like a really lucid historian um, I think what's what's good about Stuart, and I think this is what's actually just generally good about um, most of the like historians that I think are worth respecting, is that you know it's very obvious that his cards are on the table, and it's very obvious what groups he has sympathies with, um, and what groups he doesn't have sympathies with, and what individuals he doesn't have sympathies with. For example, um, Franco. <laughs> Franco, one of them, but also, you know, even those within sort of the, the inner life of, of the CNT, there are certain individuals which uh, he doesn't necessarily blame for the, you know, total defeat of the, of the anarchists, but also the, you know, the, the Republic, the Spanish Republic and the Civil War, but certainly uh, thinks that they betrayed the, the movement. Um, so, I think he's particularly critical of this Spanish anarchist uh, who's actually, she's, you know, in Freedom outside, there's that like um, mural of anarchists that, yeah, it's actually like a really beautiful mural. Um, I think she's on that, Federica Monsen, and she was like, uh, I think health minister or something um, within the uh, Spanish Republican government but I should just say by the way the 1930s is not ideal of the period <laughs> when I'm sort of doing research ideal of the period of defeat the 1930s is not is not my uh, area of, of expertise but he was critical of her because uh, she entered the government and then was kind of you know when the, the, the revolution happened was quite quick to say actually no like you know we need to support the effort to defeat fascism and, and and was quite quick to sort of rene jean kind of more like revolutionary commitments um so and he was intensely intensely critical of her she ends up taking like a really key leadership position in exile and that whole it's really interesting that whole that the, the cnt in exile um actually has quite a stale feel to it it's kind of 
you know, uh, it will have these like sort of frequent celebrations of the of the Spanish Revolution and and whatnot. But there's no kind of discussion of or of strategy like in the present and like how might we return to Spain or or any of that. Um, so I think Stuart finds them quite difficult people to deal with. He's more attracted to the younger crowds of, of, of Spanish anarchists um, that, uh, belong, that belong to the Juventud Elizabetarias, which were the libertarian youth section of the uh, CNT. Although a funny, funny fact about that is that actually most of the people that belonged to the libertarian youth section, like in the 60s, you had members of the libertarian youth section that were like, in their mid thirties to forties, um, yeah. So age is know. just a number. And, yeah. You know. I, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I've lost what your actual initial question was. I feel like I've gone off down a, a rabbit hole. Talking it was. About it was. It was, about, it was that, that was great. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it was good. But it, it was about the original question was about uh, the relationship between the individual and the collective in the way that he tells the, the story of a uh, Spanish anarchism. I think you're right, though, that, uh, I mean, it seems like Spanish anarchism for everyone, including for me, forms a kind of, um, like a romance, or like a romantic period to which there was like a, kind of a continuous desire to return, uh, even if the details are, um, as they are definitely for me, uh, not all that clear to exactly like how you would, or what you'd even be returning to. And I'm, I'm wondering like what you think the kind of the, what's the function of it um, in the kind of the wider anarchist movement? Um, I mean, I guess like there's this kind of, uh, very sad kind of repetition that happens you were talking about in the CNT, right? Like after the, in the period of defeat, as you said, it comes kind of stale and so on. So it's kind of repeating, but without being able to like kind of really kind of address it. And I, I wonder what kind of function you think that the the period of, or, or, or either the Spanish anarchists themselves or the defeat of the Spanish anarchists forms in the kind of the imaginary international anarchism. Like, and is it really the kind of the waning of that romance that essentially marks off the kind of the, the death knell of, of, of international anarchism in the, um, in the 1960s. Let's assume that that thesis is correct. Mm, I think it does, you know, it, I, I, I wouldn't go as far to say that like, you know, the anarchist movement completely like is non-existent in sort of the 70s it is, but it's kind of, you know, there's like, it, it's at that period where there's a kind of like balkanization of the left and you have like various different like anarchist groups and, and, and Maoist groups and all very small splintered groups. Um, I think that the danger, and this is actually what many uh, sort of those that are sort of at the younger end um, of the of the CNC in the in the in the fifties and sixties, they kind of say that, that there's a danger here of you know the international anarchist movement being blindsided by the Spanish Revolution. You know the the conditions that were available to us then aren't now. We have to like face what's in front of us. Um, and so, you know, there were various people in the CNC that were, you know, calling for alliances with um, like other oppositional groups, including those that, you know, had acted pretty abysmally towards anarchists during the Civil War. But many of these anarchists felt that there was no, there's little choice but to kind of just, you know, they were too small to, to do this by themselves. They needed to work with other oppositional groups. It's a kind of a paradox that um, Federico Monsen, who was one of the uh, characters that uh, Stuart was very critical of, um, she ended, despite having served in the Republican government, she made this really weird about face turn in it basically an attempt to maintain control of, of, of the CNT in exile and said, like, no collaboration, like any collaboration is like complete counter revolutionary, despite having done precisely that at the time perhaps maybe when it mattered the most um so yeah it is it, it does it does kind of you know it blindsides the international anarchist movement um i think i mean Guy Debord actually ends up writing i think in his in society of the spectacle one of his theses is about he talks about anarchism um and he basically says that like that the, the problem with the CNC is that like it, it thinks that its only failure is that it was kind of betrayed by its its leaders sort of thing um, and that yeah that probably was an, an important part 
Um, I, I think probably the, the civil war would have been lost anyway, but I guess there's a conversation there to be had about how you lose. Do you lose with dignity or do you lose with sort of, you know, sort of compromise and, and, and whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it, that defeat was kind of so colossal. It also occurred at a time, you know, in the 30s when the, the, the rest of the workers' movement in Europe had been smashed. Um, I think the reason why the anarchist movement found it so hard after the war to kind of reconvene uh, is that, you know, it had kind of been lots of workers were for a time sort of kind of satisfied with sort of post-1945 arrangements I guess the communist party had huge sort of social cultural capital because of its role in sort of transnational anti-fascist networks during um, the second world war obviously Spanish anarchists also played an important part in that but you know not as large to extent as, as, as the communist party um, so I think they struggled with that. Obviously, the, the, the next sort of moment of opportunity was sort of the late 60s and the kind of the rupture with the, the post-war consensus. Um, but uh, it seemed like there was lots of kind of anarchist tendencies like circulating within like various movements at a sort of local national level, but they, they kind of failed to, to build sort of institutions really that would kind of you know keep these things going I guess the anarchist black cross was different in that sense because you know it was an institution that was long lasting um and they did try and you know Stuart was keen to make it an organization that you know wasn't just a kind of sort of ambulance service for the left you know like picking up <laughs> prisoners and, and those that had like been uh, brutally repressed by the state but actually for it to be like a force for like combat as well and, and you know a force for um actually like changing things um so i think you know there were attempts made to be like people did attempt to anarchists did attempt to do that but um i think post 68 with like sort of continental wide state repression so many groups just splintered um and i think it was just it was it, <laughs> You, I just feel like you were just not going to return to that kind of period of sort of mass mobilization that you had sort of in the 30s, which was seen as like, this is it, like we have to defend this because there's like, there is nothing left in, in like Europe. You know, I mean, like fascism has, has completely destroyed the workers' movement. Um, I guess, I mean, there is a kind of slight resurgence, particularly in Spain, of a kind of more like revolutionary syndicalism in the late 60s. Before that, the Communist Party in Spain had been actually uh, quite successful um, at mobilizing workers um, in these like clandestine workers assemblies. But in 67, the Francoist state basically makes it very clear that this kind of tactic of infiltrating what we'll call these, they were these vertical trade unions, this tactic is just not gonna be tolerated. Um, and they came down hard on uh, the Communist Party. So like a league, it was like a semi, well, it wasn't really a legalist strategy, but they were basically using the infrastructure of the vertical trade unions to subvert them. And that was that sort of sort of gray legal zone was just closed down. Um, so sort of this syndicalism, this revolutionary syndicalism and, and the legalism became sort of, well, returned, I guess, to Spain for a bit. But um, yeah, I mean, then you had the, you know, the death of Franco and the, the transition and the, and the pats and that's a whole different story. But uh, yeah, kind of, I have one question to ask about that story, <laughs> which like, after the transition, right, like the new constitution of Spain, but it's like written kind of with like a great deal of continuity and particularly like power for the army and so on. Like, but how do you see the contemporary far right in Spain? So the Vox party and so on, like, how do you see those as related to the, the Franco, mm -hmm. uh, Franco Spain? Yeah, I mean, many of them have, you know, uh, some of those like hold leadership positions have direct connections to various Frank various Francoist ministers. Um, 
I mean, there's obviously a very clear connection between, you know, the Vox Party and, and, and Francoism. I think uh, one of the electoral maps a couple of years ago looked at voting patterns um, in Spain and where Vox came out strong. And unsurprisingly, it was in those areas which became Francoist very early on. Um, so that the Francoism, but it, as you know, that legacy is still is still there and it's alive um, and it's and it's well. And you know, obviously, it's it, it's been great to see. You know, online recently, one of the last statues to Franco was was removed. Um, but I think, and, and that's great. I think you know, public space is, is really important, and it's important for you know <laughs> fascist dictators not to be uh, revered. Um, but I think it kind of perhaps neglects the extent to which Francoism is still alive in the army, the judiciary. You know, it's a, it's a structural, a deep, deep structural problem. Um, and one that, yeah, it explains that that, that sort of moment of success for the Vox Party. Um, and also, you know, I just think, I mean, it's interesting because the Vox are kind of like, diff, I guess, you know, we didn't have social media in during the Franco dictatorship, but they seem, I guess, a bit more sort of savvy, less sort of old fashioned when it comes to a bit more, yeah, sort of insurgent when it comes to sort of propaganda and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I the the, the issue of, of Francoism, like it comes up again and again, and you see it in relation to. I guess the stuff in uh, Catalonia, um, you know, the the, risk, the the kind of the response of sort of the authority of the state to that um, is just kind of you can't really make sense of it without you know looking at what happened in the transition and the and the constitution and how you know like the keeping the community, the national community of Spain sort of together is like kind of sacrosanct and any challenge is seen as like a kind of violent challenge. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, statues, removing them, brilliant, but that's definitely widen the conversation and think about actually how we can transform institutions of power rather than just you know, relics, which, you know, still exude power and still, you know, still um, have to deal with these things. But I think, yeah. Yes, I, 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 it's, 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 a, it's extremely important. Or abolish some of the institutions. I mean, you know. I don't, yeah. Yes, that's the other option. Uh, so the archive just got its diet, it's had this big fundraiser, um, raised a lot of money. Where can people keep up with what you're doing and how can they get involved if you want people to be involved? Yeah, so um, I mean, we have like a Twitter and, and Facebook page. I, both of the well, you don't have a handle on Facebook, do you? I'm such a granny when it comes to these things. But um, there's Archive Stuart. Um, if you do, or if you search on Facebook the Stuart Christie Memorial Archive, it will come up. But the Twitter handle is is Archive Stuart, um, and we're using that to keep people updated. Um, I think probably we would, you know, like to in the in at some point in the in the future um in the near future sort of have a sort of online event um of some sort um to talk about the archive what we're doing with it and you know invite people to contribute any ideas i think you know we want this to be we want everyone to have sort of their hands on the archive it's not this kind of you know academic or sort of state archive thing where you know materials are preserved to basically hinder present use and like, you know, keep it there and then wait until some like notional future generation that they haven't really thought about like comes and finds it like some time capsule or something. Um, yeah. So that's not what we, we want to Good. do. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. All yeah. hands on. So yeah, if people have ideas, um, it'd be, yeah, great to hear from them. Fantastic, thank you so much. This has been really uh, interesting. Um, any last thoughts? Um, no, I just, I guess, like, just thank you to everyone that's, that's donated so far. Like, um, it's just been, I don't think we, we, we really, 10K was a total stab in the dark for us. We just, we kind of, it came, we came up with a number 
based on like how long we thought it would take to archive the stuff and things we wanted to do and we were like 10k is that reasonable we don't <laughs> um and it turns out yes it turns out yeah um which is like is great um and now we can do it now we can just you know we can get on and do it which is brilliant uh this has been 12 Wars for what i uh, hope you enjoy the show uh see you very soon bye-bye see ya <laughs> Bye. Silver Threads, Still Walking, Still Waking is co-hosted by me, Carla Bergman. And me, Eleanor Goldfield. This is where we interview long-term organizers and radicals about their watershed moments, what they've learned along the way, and how they maintain their hope on this path. Dreaming and building emergent worlds for a present and future anchored in justice and freedom for all. Because there are forks in the road, but they all lead us home to the fight, to the build. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. Thanks a lot and I will see you very soon. 12 rules for what?